Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 30. Let's talk what if. What if is a question that is always on the historian's mind, and it leads to a very interesting brand of history called alternative history, which will be the topic for today's Let's Talk. So, I've brought along a guest who is a bit of an expert on alternative history, so guest, please introduce yourself. Yes, hi there, Jamie. Uh, my name is Jordan Harbour, and um, I run a small podcast called The Twilight Histories, which is an alternate history podcast. So um, we've done some collaboration in the past, and, and uh, I always enjoy talking with you, Jamie, and I've uh, been really looking forward to this, this show, actually. Yeah, I've been excited about it. So we did the podcast history, cage, the project history cage matches together. Um, I think I've put some of those on my feed, so uh, my listeners should be familiar with you. I'm very disappointed with you listeners if you aren't familiar with Jordan's work. Well, <laughs> there it is. So um, if you aren't familiar with Jordan's work listeners, um, what kind of things do you do, Jordan, in your show? What topics have you got into? Um, well, just as a sort of a, a brief background, mm-hmm. um, I used to be an archaeologist. I, I've subsequently left the field. Um, it, it just didn't really uh, work with my lifestyle anymore. But I wanted to sort of keep the... Um, uh, I don't know. There, there was sort of a creative juice that that brought me into to ancient history, um, and history in general. And I didn't want to let that go. You know, I needed some kind of outlet for that. So I created this podcast, The Twilight Histories, and it's essentially a kind of storytelling format where you are the adventurer, you are the time traveler that goes back in time and experiences these different worlds. And what I found is that kind of the more creative worlds that that we can come up with are are alternate uh universes where things kind of changed and and didn't quite happen as uh you'd expect and Mm -hmm. it it allows it to sort of connect more with the twilight zone which was sort of the one of the inspirations for the show Mm -hmm. so that kind of gives you a a rough breakdown the elevator pitch (laughs) yes get them all hooked oh yeah alternative history is uh very creative. On your Facebook page for the podcast, you put loads of pictures up about lots mm. of different alternative history. I find those really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, a distractor from actually getting the podcast done. <laughs> uh, oh, what was the one oh, you did a few days ago? The um, if the Nazis got round to invading America. Uh, yeah, I found a, a whole bunch of maps from 1942 from Life magazine where um, it, it just showed uh, possible routes that the Nazis and the Japanese could have taken in order to get into America. There were some interesting ones like uh, the Nazis um, mm-hmm. doing a feint and, um, around Britain and then moving up north around uh, Greenland and coming down in, uh, through Canada. thought that was kind of a creative way. All right. I've always wondered where you get those pictures from. So I've got no idea where I would go to look if I were to do yeah, anything well, like that. Honestly, it's just uh, Google ser- Google Im- image searches and uh, a lot of time. <laughs> that's about it. So that's your subject. So let's bring it over to mine a bit. The Punic Wars. Yes, what please. do you make? What do you make of the Punic Wars? The Romans, the Carthaginians. The Romans, I sort of see as, at least in this era, mm-hmm. are a bit more of the the brutes. They're they're kind of this. Um, a uh, pretty rough group of warriors, uh, not very cultured, not really any interest in being cultured. Um, the, the Carthaginians, on the other hand, are going through their golden age. 
And unfortunately, we don't have any records from them that can attest to it. But based on the archaeological evidence, based on uh, the the literary sources that speak about them, I mean, it just sounds like it's it, it's kind of like Athens on steroids. Uh, it, I mean, they're going through a serious uh, uh, golden age at, at this stage during the beginning of the the Punic Wars. And it's probably a, a sad thing that we lost them. It's something you really notice when doing a history like this, is that you don't have anything from the other side's point of view. We only have Roman sources. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's a bit like a, it's a bit like a dialogue with only one person speaking. Yeah. So you kind of have to base your your you know your your explanations on that one uh, interlocutor. You, you can't really use the other person. There, there was one interesting thing that I uh, heard recently on uh, Dan Carlin's latest uh, Wrath of the Khan, uh, I think it was part five, mm-hmm. where he describes the sack of Baghdad. And there was one line that he used to describe it, which was um, that the the river ran red with the blood of philosophers and scientists and poets and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a, a quite a, a good attestment to to the Punic Wars as well. That's kind of what it was. I mean, they were in the, the middle of their golden age, probably even greater than what was going on in Athens. And mm. along came the Romans and, and squashed them. I have a particular interest in um, architecture. Mm. And the designs of the harbours there at Carthage were extremely sophisticated. Mm-hmm. The, um, is it the military harbour, which was a circle... Mm-hmm. The Circle Harbour, that's very... Or was it an octagonal? Uh, I believe it It was a circle within a circle, so I think it had about 200 berths. Yes, it was a really incredible building. Mm-hmm. And they were very, a very sophisticated people, the Carthaginians. Very sophisticated, and uh, they had buildings which were six stories high. I mean, they're basically skyscrapers in terms of the ancient world. Uh, I mean, you don't see anything like that until modern Europe, where uh, you, you, now you can walk through something like uh, some city like Lisbon or, or Madrid, and, and you'll see uh, most of the buildings are about the same height as they would have been back in Carthage, mm-hmm. and about the same size as well. Carthage had about 400,000 people. Well, that is a lot of people, 400,000. I've never yeah. heard that statistic before. No, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's, that's sort of the, the estimate that archaeologists uh, give it. Uh, by comparison, Athens had about a quarter of a million. Mm. I mean, the only rivals in the ancient world for a city that size would be later Rome and Alexandria. There isn't yeah. anything of that big at that time period, at least in that half of the world you get some probably similar similarly sized cities in China. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to say China is probably the the closest place that you would find a city of that size. Um, And and also very cosmopolitan. Uh, Mm. Out of a city of 400,000, my guess is they probably had about 100,000 Carthaginians and the rest were all foreigners. Uh, So you would have seen faces from all over the world. You would have seen uh, Celts from Britain uh, in Spain. You would have seen um, you know, Arabs, uh, Berbers, mm. uh, Sub-Saharan Africans, Greeks. Uh, and, you know, I was even thinking about it. This might be somewhat speculative, but you might even find some North American Indians in Carthage. 
there's mm. sort of a, an outside possibility that they might have actually visited and an outside, outside possibility that they would have brought in a couple back. So <laughs> at one point you might have accidentally bumped into a Sioux, which I think is <laughs> is a fascinating outside possibility. The idea of a um, pre-Columbian cross-Atlantic uh, like trading network mm-hmm. is an idea that I find incredibly interesting. There mm-hmm. are um, mummies in Egypt where they have coca leaves like in, where they found traces oh. of coca leaves in the mummies which would have had to have come from Central America mm. yeah the, that's amazing the idea of how they got there is oh. so intriguing and perhaps oh. more intriguing is the idea of how we don't know about it how that must have been such a huge thing at the time but we just have yeah. no, barely any traces left of it. Yeah, and it makes you just sort of wonder what were in these libraries. Uh, mm. I had a professor, he, um, he told our class, he says that, uh, the great library wasn't the greatest tragedy in the world when it, it burned down. It was actually the library of Constantinople because all of the libraries, all of the cities, sorry, had libraries. They were all competing against each other. It was kind of this Hellenistic, um, you know, one-upmanship where they would try to uh, up each other and, and build uh, a bigger library. And it's it's really an attest- uh, testament to the uh, civilizations that, uh, you know, libraries were at the center of this, uh, this boom. You would want to have a library. And I have little doubt that uh, Carthage, in its situation so close to Alexandria, and as one of the central cities in the uh, just outside the Hellenistic world would have had a library as well and I mean the, the knowledge that, that was lost because of the <laughs> because of the burning of that library um, there is some evidence that they did have a library mm-hmm. at the burning of Carthage uh, there were found in the, in the temple the temple of Apollo there were found all of these uh, little clay signets that uh, would have been used to um, to seal the books, and unfortunately, the only way that they survived is because they were burned. Uh, so uh, you can just imagine the Carthaginians as the uh, as the the impending day was coming, uh, just raiding the library of all their best works, bringing it up to the temple, and then having the Romans just crash through and destroy it. Oh, such just... a shame. <laughs> I'm also wishing that. That was something that we did today, not the sacking Carthage, but mm. the competing to have huge libraries. How nice would that be if, instead of building incredibly tall office buildings mm. that don't really do anything if we were competing to build huge academic libraries? Yeah, that would be something. Well, that is I guess thankfully we're in the digital age, so maybe uh, we'll have something like that. There was a lot of stuff there at Carthage that's lost and it makes it very hard to answer the question like who are the Carthaginians so sometimes like the historian needs to use different tricks like uh, analogies can be very useful at this do you find that uh yes and you know i've often thought uh, we've talked about this cursorily um uh, just before but comparing you can sort of compare uh this conflict, the, the the Punic Wars, to another conflict that happened, the Peloponnesian Wars. This happened uh, slightly earlier, uh, and th- th- there's a striking similarity between the two. And 
what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is sort of describe how the two are the same. And in that way, we might be able to sort of glean a little bit more about what the Carthaginians are like, sort of by analogy. I mean, the problem is, is that we we have a conversation going where one of the interlocutors has been killed, so we can't really get their point of view. So uh, the analogy is between um, the Punic Wars and the Carthaginian or in the uh, the Peloponnesian Wars. So Rome and Sparta, if you look at them side by side, they actually kind of line up. They're they're very similar. So in both they um, they have a disdain for nice things. So they they uh, value hardship and struggle and pain. These are virtues. Uh, they they like to kill things. Um, they're kind of nasty. Um, they were very interested in things like weaponry and and anything that could help them conquer and hold people. And they weren't really interested in kind of the more effeminate things like philosophy, art, poetry, and and that kind of thing. At least at this time. Uh, this time. Yeah. Uh, they were a very very much a warrior culture. So if you were in an assembly and and the vote was for war or peace, uh, you'd better put your hand up. Um, they both conquered the lands around them and enslaved the populations. So uh, with Sparta, they had the Helots. Those were the people in the in the Peloponnese. That's kind of the um, the area where the the Spartans lived, and they just conquered those people and enslaved them. And we're talking abject uh, chattel slavery, mm-hmm. where they the Helots didn't have mines anymore. They were their masters' minds. Uh, the Romans were a little bit different. They conquered the Italians. Some they conquered them somewhat more like uh, how the Spartans did with the Helots, but in others it was more of um, alliances that were in favor of the Romans. And you, you can imagine that the Italians just really weren't that happy with the situation, <laughs> um, even though it had a fairly good deal. I mean, they were sending their sons off to war. They were giving money. Uh, but an interesting aside is that the Athenians used the exact same tactic against the Spartans during the Peloponnesian War as Hannibal did against the Romans during the Second Punic War, which was to try to incite revolt against the conquered territories hmm. or within the conquered territories. So the Athenians would would move into um, into the Helot territories and and they would give them supplies and and um you know information and and try to incite revolt because i mean the the athenian army was fairly small and and inexperienced when compared to the spartans Mm -hmm. they didn't stand a chance so um but if they had all of the helots involved then their hope was that they could together with confederacy um take out the the lacedaemonians and unfortunately it didn't work but it's an interesting uh Comparison. I think in, there's a passage in Herodotus where he was talking about them gathering the force to fight at Thermopylae, mm. and I think it's one Spartan who's called up for every seven helots. Oh well, that that could be. Uh, I haven't read uh, Herodotus for a few years, um, but yeah, they they would just use them mm. and abuse them. I mean, that's for sure. They they uh, they had, they didn't have much respect for those helots. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, imagine being a, a helot. What a horrible existence. At any rate, so um, both the Romans and the Spartans, they hated and mistrusted the sea. They The honor was in the land. And, uh, yes. uh, you know, outside diplomatic missions, I don't think there was a great deal of interaction between Romans and, 
and you know say uh, other peoples like Celts and and East Indians and I mean they, it was a pretty homogenous society. Uh, they they had an ur- urban population that was not very diverse. It was homogenous. Mm. Uh, and um, I mean, you, you would basically, if you made a pie chart, you would have the Romans, you would have, you know, a smaller amount that were Italians, and then you might have a teeny little sliver that were peoples like Greeks, mm-hmm. who um, probably didn't want to be there. So basically, in summary, the, I mean, the Spartans and the Romans during this period uh, were boring, they were <laughs> boorish, uh, they were uncultured, <laughs> and they were unfriendly. So just, you know, not a very nice people. <laughs> now switching over to to Athens um, and Carthage, it's basically the complete opposite. I mean, it's it's sort of like a, you know, um, Lord of the Rings. I mean, one's the dark side and one's the light side uh, by comparison. I mean, they're they're complete in in opposite poles from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet there's a lot of similarities between Athens and Carthage. So both had a taste for nice things, unlike the Romans and Spartans. They valued wealth and and things that. Um, that that you could get with the wealth, like uh, art and villas and sculpture mm-hmm. and, and vacations. Uh, they were interested in things that make life better, uh, not worse, and more beautiful. So at Athens, you have the Parthenon up on the Acropolis. Mm-hmm. You have shaded marketplaces and theaters and, and of course, some nice walls to protect them. Uh, at Carthage, you have sewers, you have running water, you have showers, libraries, monumental architecture in the Hellenistic style, and, and of course, you also have walls to keep out brutes like Romans. Uh, now, neither were much of a warrior culture. At Athens, their tactic was to blockade uh, the Spartans and, and um, avoid military encounters at all costs. Mm-hmm. The, the Carthaginians... They didn't even have soldiers, at least at the start of the Punic War. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they just hired mercenaries. They only ever really used an army of Carthaginians if Carthage itself was threatened. Like, if there was an army outside of the walls, yeah. then it was time to raise a militia. Why spend your own blood? <laughs> and you can... Although that's a different topic. We can talk about that <laughs> later. The spilling of Carthaginian blood by them, themselves. Mm. Um, they were quite comfortable at sea, both Athens and Carthage, of course. Mm-hmm. They had large navies, massive navies, uh, very advanced ones at that, many traders, and they had trading colonies which they set up, or, or safe ports. So uh, rather than just sort of docking at any old beach and, and going and exploring and trying to find a silver mine, they would actually set that up themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that made their urban centers very cosmopolitan. So perhaps a, a third of Athens, as, as I mentioned earlier, were, were metics or foreigners. Carthage mm-hmm. had almost half a million people and, and perhaps, um, you know, maybe a hundred or, or two hundred thousand were, were Carthaginians. And everyone wanted to live at Carthage. I mean, you have all these different peoples from Jews to Arabs to, um, uh, Phoenicians and so forth. Mm-hmm. When I, when I like to think of, the Carthaginians in this sort of one-sided dialogue. Um, it's really enlightening when you look at someone like Cato the Elder who said repeatedly after all of his speeches, Carthage must be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I think he was talking about two things when he said this. One was that it was a line of a power that even when you crushed it, it, it would come back. It would bounce back with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, surprisingly quickly. But I think more importantly... He had been to Carthage 
He'd taken a shower in his hotel room on the sixth floor. He saw all the diverse faces and the monumental architecture, the libraries and the art and the commerce. And he saw that Carthage was a better city than Rome. And I think that scared him. And I think that's why he kept saying, we've got to destroy this place. It was an existential threat to Rome. That is a very interesting analogy. I had not thought of it that way at all. Because when you think of Cato the Elder saying Carthage must be destroyed, you always think of um, how Carthage wasn't a military rival at all, how Rome could quite easily crush Carthage. But you don't really think of it being a cultural rival, that how that must have been the uh, monkey on Rome's back, the mm-hmm. always at the back of the mind that though we're not the greatest city in the world, there is Carthage. Yeah, it was jealousy. Mm-hmm. Um, when you began your analogy, I had initially thought that it was going to be the other way around, <laughs> and because what I was thinking um, was in terms of. Uh, sources for the Peloponnesian War, how we barely have any accounts from the Spartan side. But we don't mm. have any written by Spartans. We only have a few biographies of Plutarch about Spartans. I think from the classical period there are two spe- or two biographies of Spartans by Plutarch and then 14 of Athenians. I think we have about four legal speeches from from Sparta from the period and about 135 from Athens or something like that. Mm. Well, the the Spartans were, um, you know, they viewed writing and and, um, speech making and, and, uh, you know, writing of histories and so forth as... Well, I'd imagine the general public would have would have thought that it was quite effeminate. Mm. You know, you're throwing your guys in barracks and and you're you're living a life of, you know, it's it's a pretty horrible life. Uh, yeah. And the people that are maybe more urbane and and writing poetry and and histories, you just wouldn't see that. But thankfully, thankfully, we do have uh, Athenian writers such as Thucydides who. Mm-hmm. Are very interested in getting the whole picture, even from the uh, the Lacedaemon- Lacedaemonian side. We're very lucky to have Thucydides, um, and the same with Polybius, actually. Yes, he was invaluable when looking at the first Punic War for me. Absolutely, there there is one area that I, I I'm a little bit um, on shaky ground with Polybius and uh, and the other writers of the the Punic Wars, is that they kind of take a little bit of literary license and, and I worry that they use Carthage and Hannibal as a foil for Rome so as bad and as mean and nasty as Carthage can get uh, it gives Rome something to overcome which you know carries the story through a little bit better mm-hmm. and makes it have a happier ending when Rome finally <laughs> destroys Carthage uh, yeah. so you have to be, sort of be a little bit careful when you, when you read those historians although I mean you can't sort of argue against the the thoroughness of the dates and the names and, and the places. Livy, in particular, is definitely a very romantic historian, mm, in, yeah. and he's using this to it's the rise of the greatness of Rome. It's being written under Augustus in the the Augustan Renaissance, and you need to bear that in mind when reading it. Like, what? Why is Livy writing this? Yeah, and every historian is going to have his biases. Yes, we all do. Mm-hmm. 
So I've come up with a bit of a uh, an alternate reality. Is that what you would call it? Uh, alter, sure. Why not? Okay. Speculative uh, fiction, alternate history, and alternate uh, reality. Yes. Those Different dimensions. <laughs> alternate dimensions. I like that. An alternate dimension. Basically, this is the kind of thing we're going to be basing our thoughts on. Is that after Kanai, um, Carthage builds a fleet, which you will find out as the podcast goes on, that that is one of the main reasons why Carthage lost, is that she didn't build a fleet. So Carthage builds a fleet, and it's able to regain its control over the Western Mediterranean, which Rome dominated at this period. Its fleet was more than twice the size of Carthage's. So with this fleet, Carthage is able to reliably send reinforcements to Hannibal. For instance, when Hasdrubal beats the Scipione, the Scipione brothers in Spain, it's able to transport Hasdrubal and his army by sea, rather than having to send them through the Alps again. Mm -hmm. So Hannibal has a large enough army in Italy that he's able to put his plan into action. He's able to tear up the Italian confederacy at its height in rea- in this dimension. Um, I think Hannibal had turned 40% of the Italian cities against Rome. Like, he did come very close to achieving his plan mm. of turning Italy against Rome. But with a slightly larger force, perhaps he's able to keep it going. He's able to get more cities on his side. He's able to be better supplied. Mm. And eventually he isolates Rome and sacks it because... Rome has lost her commanders, perhaps. Scipio is sent on a... to battle the Carthaginian fleet and dies in a naval battle. Um, oh, Rome, good riddance. Yes. Rome's best generals are dead, she's stranded, isolated, and she is sacked brutally by Hannibal, and the war ends. And now, we ask, what happened next? Hmm. I, I can't imagine Hannibal... Uh, allowing the city to exist. I mean, it, this was an endemic war that could only have one outcome, and that was um, the destruction of a city. And that city was either going to be Rome or it was going to be Carthage. Uh, I've just been struck by an analogy. <laughs> really <laughs> stupid one. Um, saying that it reminded me awfully of um, the Harry Potter books between Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort. Neither can live while the other survives. <laughs> It's a beautiful analogy, and you know, it's, it's always nice to bring Harry Potter into something as ruthless as, as uh, the Punic Wars, where <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people were being slaughtered on battlefields. Yes. Uh, children's books. Um, yeah, so essentially it had to happen, and that was the only real way that uh, Carthage could get back on her feet. Uh, Rome was just it had shown over and over again that it would not give up. So... Mm-hmm. And I don't think Hannibal had any qualms about killing lots of people. I don't think he really had um, sort of heartstrings to to pull on when it came to something as um, as awful as as Rome was to him. I mean, he was right from his birth was given this kind of mandate that you must destroy Rome. So I think the outcome would have been dire for Rome. And really, I mean, I think that there are three points which you could mark as your point of departure and there would have been three very different outcomes based on each of those points 
so the first point would have been had uh, the Carthaginians defeated the Romans in the initial onset of the war. Mm-hmm. So at the, the, the beginning of the first Punic War, if they had, um, what was the, the battle, the battle of Agatai or, or whatnot, um, had they defeated the Romans there and were able to uh, keep, uh, sort of hem the Romans in, uh, their their mindset might not have changed as much. It, it would have just seen sort of like a um, uh, par for the course. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit into the psychology here. And if you'll allow me to sort of get on a, a bit of a tangent. That's fine. Uh, the, if you think about your own society, there's lots of people around you that, that might be religious, either um, Christian or Muslim or Catholic or, or, or Jewish. Uh, and they're quite moderate. They, they don't think much differently than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not one of those, in one of those groups, uh, I should apologize. <laughs> um, but what happens is that as situations become more dire, as your life becomes more threatened, uh, as your city becomes sieged and you're starving and your family is dying and, and so on and so forth, then you start to swing a little more into the wings of your uh, particular faith or or ideology. So, for instance, in Germany, you would have uh, communism and fascism battling it out. Uh, if you were a Muslim, you know, some, the word jihad might sort of start to resonate with you a little bit more. Uh, in um, If you were a Christian, sort of these, you would look back to the, the Crusades, perhaps, and uh, see yourself on a crusade, as, as George Bush said so many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're Jewish, you would look at something like Deuteronomy or, or some of the old battle texts of the, of the Old Testament. And I think that that's what slowly began to happen at Carthage as the Punic Wars progressed. And mm-hmm. as, as far as you go into the Punic Wars, that pulls you into the wings of their ideology. There's a Roman writer that speaks about uh, human sacrifice at Carthage and how there were some nobles and, and things were good. But then things started to not be so good. And they were looking around and at themselves and saying, oh, well, you know, we never, we never performed our human sacrifices. And so they started to look around for, for uh, you know, people to sacrifice. And, of course, you have to sacrifice your, your firstborn or, or whatnot. Um, they didn't really want to do that. They they probably just went to the slave market and picked up some young slaves, and, and hundreds of these people were sacrificed when things weren't good. And I think if you look at the beginning of the Punic War and compare that to, say, the end of the Punic War, you can imagine when, uh, as the city is being laid siege to, and the population is down to 100,000, so it's down uh, a quarter or more, uh, you can imagine that the mindset is just gone crazy. I mean, they, mm. they, they must have just been in an absolute panic and, and their ideology would have um, really been twisted, especially after generations of, of this twisted ideology. So mm. by the time of Hannibal, kind of to answer your question in a roundabout yeah. way, yes. uh, I think that they still would have been somewhat sane. <laughs> They, they would have been kind of pushed to the, slightly to the wings of moderation, but they would have been, they would have seen, okay, we're winning. We're paying a lot of taxes in order to keep this war going. Uh, but we're, you know, we've been winning for years and, and business is booming. And, and, uh, I think 
you know, one generation might have passed after the destruction of Rome, and those people would have kind of bounced back to the way they were before. Mm-hmm. You no, know, the the um the temptation of of uh, vacations and, and villas is just too much. I mean, you you don't want to spend all your time kind of gr- you know moaning and groaning over over human sacrifice. <laughs> so um, you know, but uh, so by the time. Uh, the Carthaginians or Hannibal had conquered Rome. Uh, it would it would have sort of been a, a VA, VE day in in, uh, in Carthage, and everyone mm. would have been jubilant, and and uh, they probably would have carried on the next day and gotten on with their lives. Mm. Uh, if you were to fast forward a hundred years, without Rome, and without that, you know this this massive foil for the Carthaginians. The, the Mediterranean would have been an open season for them. I mean, they wouldn't have had to have much of a navy. They would have been the dominant character in the in the Mediterranean, and uh, trade routes would have been flourishing throughout Italy. And they would, I mean, Italy and Sicily were right at the very center of uh, of the Mediterranean. So mm. you couldn't go east or west without them. Yes. So if you had conquered that central pillar, which they were hoping to do. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly, you, there would be an incredible infusion of wealth into whatever capital controlled those trade routes, and that would have been Carthage. So we probably would have seen uh, a Mediterranean that, well, I, I would, I, I don't want to suggest that they would have industrialized or anything, but it would have been a very wealthy place uh, all around uh, the whole circuit of the, of the Mediterranean world, and and it, the, probably the Greek cities would have. Uh, benefited from it as well. So Alexandria and and um, Athens and um, you know it would have been a very nice place to live. I think I, if I was to time travel, I'd probably want to go back and visit it. The um, the Carthaginian trade network up until the Punic Wars was essentially the Western Mediterranean, which it dominated, but it never really managed to break out beyond Italy, beyond the control of the Greeks and the control of the Romans, without them being there as a stumbling block, Carthage could just expand that into the East. You, mm. It would um, perhaps reignite the old uh, Phoenician trading networks, which collapsed yeah. with the Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. And because um, Phoenicia was an incredibly wealthy place in the 700s BC, mm-hmm. so perhaps we have like a new, a new golden age in Carthage. Yeah, or at least a continuation of one that was snuffed out yes. by the Romans. Taking it to new heights of golden, the Platinum Age. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know what's interesting, you bring up the Phoenicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Phoenicians were, they kind of had this unique place, at least in the Bronze Age, where wow. you had the Assyrians and you had the Egyptians and they, they needed all these wealth goods. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't get them themselves. Uh, the Assyrians were landlocked. Uh, they couldn't get into the Mediterranean to exploit all of those resources. And the uh, the Egyptians, they had these kind of flat-bottom boats that couldn't leave the Nile, so they couldn't venture out into the, the open ocean. So you had the Phoenicians, which were these middlemen, and they were quite happy to be sort of middlemen on the outside of great empires. Hmm. So when I imagine Carthage breaking through Rome and, and having that block dealt with... Uh, they, they would have fallen quite nicely, I think, into trading with the great powers to the east. And I don't necessarily see them conquering them. Uh, they, you know, the, their mentality was never one of conquest. Uh, 
It was one of breaking the barriers to trade. That's quite a theme in Carthage. It's more a merchantel power rather than a territorial and militaristic power. So it would definitely, if it was able to win the Punic Wars, you'd definitely see it expanding that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, I, when I've been trying to think of what would have happened, mm-hmm. the question that came up to me would be, would Hannibal be content to let that happen? Uh, or would yes. he drive on for new yes. conquests? Uh, it's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a suspicion that the Carthaginians were very mistrustful of Hannibal, which may in part explain why they didn't rebuild their fleet and why they didn't uh, do all that they could to assist Hannibal. Hannibal yes. was kind of an outsider to Carthage. He he never really spent much time there. Um, he kind of had this uh, blank check to go out and, and conquer his own lands and, and kind of the name of Carthage. But I don't think that the Carthaginians would have been... Uh, it, it sort of reminds me of, uh, what was it, Justinian. And he had a general. Belisarius. Belisarius, yeah. So he conquered Italy and spent his whole life doing it. I mean, the, the best years of his life conquering this place. And then Justinian kind of got jealous and fearful of this guy uh, taking his place as emperor. So he just kind of brought him back and threw him into Anatolia, into the middle of no man's land. And as a consequence, Italy was um, uh, it was lost to the, Byz- uh, the Byzantines. So I'm... I, I can sort of, in my mind's eye, more envision Hannibal coming at odds with Carthage after mm-hmm. the uh, end of the Second Punic War, rather than Hannibal sort of becoming this um, great general who would have continued on. I think he would have lost his support. Like, um, you see, like, a more civil war breaking out afterwards? Ah, yeah, it, it would have been kind of like the civil war with uh, Julius Caesar gaining too much power and the Senate being fearful of him. If that does happen, and you've just had an intensely loyal army following mm-hmm. Hannibal throughout Italy, then mm-hmm. you would would you see Hannibal marching on Carthage and setting up a monarchy? Uh, that is definitely an outcome. I don't think Hannibal ha- would have any qualms about uh, kicking out their senate and, and setting himself up and his family. He was, uh, I mean, he had ha- Hamilcar as well. Mm. Uh, so he had the power base. He had the uh, experience. He had, he, he would have had, uh, uh, basically, uh, southern Gaul. He would have mm. had Spain. He would have had Italy. Uh, and he would have had all the armies that would come with them. Um, and, and he was immensely popular with the people at Carthage. Like the upper classes hated him. Mm-hmm. Like they did not like the Barkis at all because he was a new man. But the people loved him, which is um, something that Julius Caesar didn't really have on his side. Because most right. of because they hated him when he marched into Rome the first time, because they were more on the side of the Senate and Pompey, so without that obstacle, uh-huh. then I could really, I could see Hannibal taking over. Yeah, uh, he would have been something of a populist, although I, I'm not sure that he would have been aware of, of that as, as much as he was. He, I, mm. I can see him sort of coming to Carthage and, and kind of his rags and his, you know, his, his armor and his missing eye and unshaven and discovering that suddenly everyone loves him. <laughs> uh, Very pleasant surprise. 
And I think it would have been kind of unpleasant for the people of Carthage to suddenly realize what they had wished for. It wasn't <laughs> quite what they had wanted. Uh, well, it's the pre-television era, the pre-global internet era, so perhaps not that many of the 400,000 people would see him. Although I imagine there'd probably be a triumphal parade. Could you imagine him having a big triumphal parade marching in, <laughs> and then the crowd yeah. just being silent, staring at him? Uh, wait, are you Hannibal? You're Hannibal? <laughs> yeah, you're kind of frightening. You're kind of a barbarian. Uh, uh, well, I, I think they would have given him a, a good parade, and then afterwards, you know, when the, the uh, confetti settles, they would have suddenly, you know, cleaned up and realized, oh boy. Um, but then again, would Hannibal have been a bad ruler? I don't know. I, I think he was um, more of a, a a general by the sword rather than a, a king by the scroll. So he would have been much more comfortable, um, you know, letting others rule in his stead. I, I can't see him governing. Uh, he just wasn't comfortable in cities. He's in the um, after the Punic Wars happened. I think there's a period of about five years or so which he spends in Carthage before he gets run out of town but by the upper classes, when he tr- does try to legislate and he does push for popular reform. Right. So you could perhaps kind of see him doing something like that, but that was more because he was forced out of the um, military by Rome, so perhaps the, a capable delegate behind. Um, Septimius Severus, with leaving mm. Plautianus behind, as the Praetorian prefect governing, and he goes off to conquer except he would probably be a lot more successful than Severus was. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, I could see him um, you know, leaving someone behind and, and going off to conquer again uh, if he got a taste for it. It's sort of, you know, these old generals, they, um, they've been doing it all their lives and, and they can't really do anything else and they, mm. they kind of need, need that to uh, uh, define them and to fulfill them. So just based on that alone, he might have turned his eyes uh, east and, and gone after Greece or maybe even the old Phoenician territories. And that would have spelled something very interesting for uh, the the Jewish culture mm-hmm. of that day because you would have the Old Testament bow suddenly placed right against the Old Testament Yahweh, um, the Jewish God. Mm-hmm. And what would the outcome of that be? What do you think the Carthage Ginians would be more, or they would be content to let the Jews have their way, or they would be more oppressive than the Romans. Because the Romans, as long as you were loyal, they were quite reasonably content to let you worship who you wanted. Uh, I think that, that the, um, the Carthaginians, in general, the Carthaginians would have been fairly um, accommodating of of all the other religions because they were in Carthage. They were a minority within their own city and there were lots of temples uh, to a lot of different gods. Uh, I mean, the main temple up on the Bursa uh, at the fall of the third, uh, fall of uh, Carthage, sorry, at the, the end of the third Punic War uh, was the Apollo to a uh, temple to Apollo. Mm. So I, I think they would have been fairly accommodating. It's just a case of uh, I'm a little iffy on whether or not if you you brought these two cultures that have so much history together, uh, you know there was that one story in the in the Old Testament uh, where you had the followers of Baal and the followers of Yahweh go up to their respective hills, 
the you know the the competition was, whichever of their fires was to light, without anyone touching the fire or, or the piles of wood, uh, whichever fire was to light, um, thanks to the gods, either Baal or, or Yahweh, um, that would everyone else would have to convert to that god because that would be the more powerful god. Mm-hmm. And what happened was Yahweh's fire burned first, and then Yahweh's followers went and massacred all of the followers of Baal. So they had some history together, right? Yes. And uh, they didn't really get along all that well, at least in the Old Testament. Um, so there was a lot of sort of, of killing and, and, and mistrust. And, and um, the, the God of the, the Old Testament says uh, eventually that uh, you must not worship any other God but me, uh, which was a bit foreign to... I think a lot of the people back then, which they would hedge their bets on a lot of different gods. So mm. there was followers of Baal and followers of of Yahweh that would um, they they would worship each other's gods. And so um, the Old Testament says that they kind of had to draw their line in the sand and say, enough of that. Uh, you're only going to do one or the other. So anytime you you have a, a line drawn in the sand like that, you have a situation of um, it's called in anthropology ethnogenesis or the creation of ethnicity. Mm. where um, a, a culture is kind of born by the contrast that it sees in a, a very similar culture next to it. I think so, there could have could very well have been conflict in, in the Middle East where um, the fo- followers of Baal would have maybe pushed themselves, pushed uh, the, the religion of Baal and, um, uh, on, the, on the local inhabitants of, of Israel. And, uh, you know, that, that might have led to there being no Jesus. I don't know. Mm. It would have been a, a more difficult climate. So that's kind of how the, um, like, if we would have a lot of conflict then, if uh, Carthage turns to Phoenicia, tried rebuilding the old Phoenician empire, how do you think um, it would fare against the other civilizations of the eastern Mediterranean if it turned, if it marched along Africa into Egypt or if it headed across Italy into Greece? I think the institutional knowledge that the Carthaginians had at, you know, by the end of the Punic Wars, or at least by the end of the Second Punic War, uh, that would have blasted any army out of the battlefield, um, even if it was twice as large. I mean, the, uh, sorry, the, the Romans, you remember in the, the time of the Mithridaic Wars, uh, they were looking east hungrily because they had that institutional knowledge and they were imagining armies and just, you know, devouring these armies that had jewels in their swords and, and gold-plated armor. And, and you know, they, they had no fear of, of the actual men that were, that were wearing all this wealth on them. They just wanted to, to, you know, run in, kill those people and get their, get their armor. I mean, so yeah. I think that the Carthaginians would have been in a similar situation. I can... The Battle of uh, Serta, which is one of my favourite battles in all-time history, where you have the uh, the Roman Lakuts against the uh, the Armenian king uh, Tigranes, who's keep uh, he's got his son-in-law, no father-in-law uh, Mithridates, and supposedly the Romans are outnumbered by ten, twenty to one. And they're hugely victorious. Mm. So if you have a Carthaginian army, which was able to beat um, the even larger Roman armies, like 20,000 Carthaginians beat 80,000 Romans at Canai, uh-huh. then 
how good would a Carthaginian army be against those same eastern peasants? They must be able to beat 40 times larger. But to take the uh, the Dan Carlin analogy, it's like coming down from a different league. Mm, yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, they they were just, uh, you know, after almost a, well, I guess the whole Pun- Punic Wars together would have been 100 years. Uh, but after decades and decades of, of warfare and against the two biggest juggernauts in all of the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. it really would have been coming down from the major leagues to the farm team. There is, I'm sure somewhere in there an analogy about uh, relegated premiership teams in just dominating the championship <laughs> plus I'm uh-huh. making up football references as it is <laughs> uh, an idea that um, Mike touched on in when he was doing his series on Hannibal was the idea of um, Hannibal against Philip V of Macedon Mm-hmm. Which is, a, I find, a very intriguing idea of if mm. uh, how I could perhaps see that going down is if um, so. Hannibal would, after the Second Punic War, he probably he might not govern Italy directly, but leave it in the hands of a rival power to Rome, such as Capua. And I could see one of those squabbling with a Greek city under the sway of. Philip the fifth, mm. and then their struggle kinds of brings Carthage and Macedon into conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, how, uh, how would you see that one going? <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's sort of the the way of of going about things um, <laughs> in the ancient world is um, you kind of conjure up a an issue and then find a reason to send an army over to resolve it yes uh so i mean that's just that, that's how it plays out over and over and over again mm-hmm. so i i think that that's probably a, a you know a, a very possible outcome if hannibal was set on moving east he would have found a way to get there mm-hmm. and get there legally the art their fighting styles were quite similar the carthaginian and the uh the greek because the central unit of both of them was essentially a phalanx. The uh, Libyan infantry, the African infantry, who I've mentioned a lot, they fought using a phalanx, the uh, the most feared units in the Carthaginian army, and in the the Greek armies were the Sacred Band, that had the mm. same name, the mm. legendary Theban Sacred Band, defeated mm. by mm. Alexander. Um, there was a Carthaginian version of it. So, were they... It could probably muster... Let's say, for fairness, they've mustered a similarly strong-sized army of Mm 40,000. They could both probably manage that. Um, Mm. I could see it being a meat grinder battle where you have the (laughs) phalanxes battling it out, and then it being a battle of the cavalry, which... Carthage would win, mm. and then sweep down the sides and crush the fam- crush the Macedonian phalanx. Right. Well, I think in in ancient warfare, especially in phalanx battles, you th- there isn't a great deal of death in the actual scrim, as you would probably mm. call it, where they're sort of butting up against each other. I mean, once they butt up against each other, they're kind of stuck, and it's just a matter of who can push. 
mm. the hardest or who can get around the other one. So, the, I mean, the real slaughter happens when one side runs away. Oh, definitely. So the, the real question is, who would have run away on that battlefield, even if they were evenly matched? Mm. And I think the, whoever has fought the most battles, whoever has that institutional experience, is going to, you know, kind of be going to work when they go to battle, as opposed to the other one that's kind of green on the job. And do they really have the metal and the uh, ability to, mm. to get over the psychological hurdle of something as intense as a phalanx battle? Uh, and uh, I'm not perhaps as familiar as, as you are with Philip V and and how much um, how many wars he fought. Uh, all I can sort of speak for is Hannibal, uh, but I, you know, may, maybe you can speak to you know his experiences I a bit more. Don't believe he had a great deal of experience because his first real test was against the Romans when he got trounced. Mm-hmm. So. What I'm imagining happening is that without Rome immediately jumping into the east, um, and without Rome provoking, carrying on the, like encouraging the Greek cities to cause trouble for Philip, Mm. that Philip's able to kind of work his way through Greece, kind of how Philip II did before Alexander. Yeah. Which, in terms of how strong or how green the armies would be, um, this league analogy works well. If you've had a, um, if you've been playing against uh, inferior teams or armies, for ages, it's going to be a bigger challenge stepping up to the, the big leagues than to someone who, like a team that's already been there for years. So it's kind of like going from the Champions League final down to a. Uh, just an average Premier League game. I'm sorry for making the football yeah. analogies. No, it's. I mean, maybe to make the the analogy closer to home, it's sort of like Caesar's thirteenth crossing the Rubicon, and everyone else is kind of running away, uh, yes. even though the, the Senate did have armies. Uh, there's just there's fear. You know, we're aware of of how sort of things are playing out on, you know, just by reading about them and and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I think in the ancient world. That's what they think about all the time. I mean, if if Hannibal is marching on Greece and you're a, a man with a spear that's got to stop him, that's all you're thinking about. You're dreaming about it at night. Mm. <laughs> you're scared. So, um, uh, I think that that uh, there wouldn't have been anyone who could contest against Hannibal had he decided to march east. It's just a question of whether or not he would have. And the other things we've got in um, Carthage focused quite on the eastern Mediterranean. Is what would happen? Do you think, like, what would happen to the West? Do you think that Hannibal would eventually be drawn, or the Carthaginians would eventually be drawn up through Gaul towards Britain, or would they leave it in the hands of the Gauls? Yeah, I suppose it's. I mean, the Carthaginians, before the Punic Wars started, they weren't really empire builders. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have an army. They, their interest was in finding a nice bay. That was clear, uh, very near to a, you know, something like a, a mine that mm-hmm. someone else would own. And then sort of setting up shop and, and allowing your, your boats a safe haven there and, and a place to re, uh, refit themselves. And, and then that would really speed up commerce. They weren't really big into conquering the mine themselves and then going on and conquering more mines. And, you know, the, 
it's sort of like the British going into India and and realizing, wow, this is a, a lot of money that we're spending building railroads and stuff. Like, let's just leave this to the British East India Company. Mm. So they had sort of more of a corporate relationship uh, with with their surroundings. There, and the people who were kind of on staff on the Senate uh, at Carthage, they were these rich people that were benefiting from this corporate relationship. And I don't think they would have wanted to expand their time uh, governing and and dealing with taxes and, and dealing with revolts and 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 warfare uh, when they could make you know money hand over fist just trading with them, mm. which is what they would. What it's the ultimate goal of of uh, interacting with people, anyways, in the ancient world is is to exchange what they have for what you have. Mm. Uh, it's it's much more efficient. So it just depends on how much of that uh, Carthaginian psyche was switched from the beginning of the First Punic War to the end of the Second had Hannibal won. So if the psyche of the Carthaginians was switched to such a degree, if it did such a, a right angle, that they became an imperialistic nation, mm. then I think that you could make an argument that they would want they would covet their neighbor's land and that they would try to take it but if they had you know once they had sort of hemmed in hannibal and kind of maybe uh, through politics isolated him and, and removed him uh, i would suspect that they would have gone back to their old corporate relationship with uh with the the rest of the mediterranean and at, at the very least what they would have done is probably um colonized uh Colonized up the rivers, like um, uh, you know the, the the rivers within France that, that would lead deeper inland, or or maybe um, founded colonies on on the Rhine, or uh, and just tried to to access these peoples in ways that were very economical, so that they could get those resources out of them. It's, so uh, it, 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 there's sort of two ways of looking at it, right? I definitely think that it's the more likely scenario that Carthage stays corporate. It's a lot harder to see Carthage suddenly gaining that we are destined to conquer the world ideology yeah. that Rome had. That's mm -hmm. what drove Roman conquests, is the belief that they were destined to conquer the world. There's there's, there's sort of one outcome that, that we haven't discussed, and it's the most unlikely outcome of all, which is... What if the point of departure was after the Third Punic War, where Carthage is under siege mm -hmm. and it's about to go down? And what if at that point, so somehow through a miracle, they had managed to uh, regain their bootstraps and uh, over the course of maybe another hundred years, beaten back the Romans? I mean, mm -hmm. completely unlikely. but the, And it's sort of a thought experiment because... What's interesting about that scenario is that the Carthaginians at, at that point would have not been thinking about any kind of corporate relationship with the Mediterranean mm. or, or trading or anything. They were thinking about survival. Uh, they were taking their, you know, adult children and uh, sacrificing them to the god Baal and, and, uh, they were shaving their wives' hair and, and, uh, making bowstrings out of it. Mm. I mean, they, they were desperate at this point. Their psyche was trashed. You know, it was sort of like the, um, well, I don't know, the, the, the people that were being besieged at St. Petersburg or Leningrad, mm. um, where they're just um, in a different zone completely. Um, 
PTSD out the nines. Uh, and religion would have played a very important role in that scenario. So had they had the point of departure been at that stage, I think we, we might see more of a radicalized kind of um, something more like the Taliban that you would see in, mm. in Afghanistan, where they're just a radicalized religion of um, human sacrifice, or, or maybe even more like uh, the Aztecs, say, or the Mayans, where mm. they practice human sacrifice in in kind of a, a very uncomfortable way. That You know, we, we look at the Romans, and it's entertainment, their form of human sacrifice. But for um, the Aztecs and the Mayans, there's something more uncomfortable about it because it's... Um, it's more insidious. It's, you know, you're walking up stairs to a knife that will disembowel you, and there's a religious element to it. And that's kind of what I would imagine the Carthaginians at the end of the Third Punic War to be like. And had that been their empire, we might have seen something a lot more like conquest by the sword. Mm. And oh, uh, I'm a vendetta against Rome. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, had they had Hamilcar, they had another Hamilcar at the end of the war. Had Hamilcar sort of taken the reins and being the general who had, um, you know, he would have, he was sort of uh, followed in Hannibal's footsteps. Mm. I think that would be the likely candidate for uh, just a radicalized Europe that would have been stagnant and uh, a horrible place to live a thousand years on, <laughs> uh, if nothing changed, if there was no reform. <laughs> so I, I think that's something, you know. To leave you with a little impression of of how bad it could be. So on the, on the one hand, we've got you know the Carthaginians, you know great people, wonderful place, love to go there, have a beer um, at the beginning of the Punic Wars. At the end, the alternate history is is uh, is pretty grim. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, you do get completely different versions of Carthage and all of Europe, depending on. Like what state you leave, you leave the Carthaginians in when they get their act together, I guess. Uh. And the long-term implications are very interesting, and something that came up quite a bit when I was um, when I asked you listeners mm. what you thought. Um, I'm not going to. Just a few thoughts on that. Um, Tom Villamer. Villemarie, uh, who, right from the the, the French podcast. Uh, yes, the history of France in English. Yes, thank you. Yes, he does uh, this podcast. He was on the Facebook group, um, mm. and he's given me some very nice plugs actually on his podcast. So thank you, Tom. Um, and he supposed what would happen if, like, a, I think he kind of thought like we did that they would leave Carthage, like Carthage would leave the, the Gallic tribes alone. And what would happen when the Huns came in? Like, would the uh -huh. Huns have a... How would they face against different Gallic tribes rather than a single political unit such as the Roman Empire that they could extort? Mm -hmm. um, I think Tom suggested that they would... Uh, that the Huns would have found it much harder to um, against the Gallic... like the Germanic tribes than they did against the Romans. Oh. Although they were very good against like the Samaritans and the Goths, they completely obliterated those. So perhaps without uh, Attila venturing into Italy to face off the Romans, 
perhaps Attila sets up a Conic Empire across Central Europe? Possibly. That could be. I mean, it would sort of be like a an early version of the Mongol Empire mm. uh, without the reforms. Yes. Yeah, without they... Kublai. Yeah, and I mean, the mm. thing about the um, the Huns were they were kind of in an upper league as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Goths and and the um, I guess the Gauls were they, they were kind of more sedentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in order to get an army together, you would have to spend a long time sort of uh, negotiating with the other tribes and finally bring them all into one place. And, you know, the Romans just would you know, sit around and, and wait for this to happen and then finally go in and smash the army or just, you know, move around them sort of like a, you know, Muhammad Ali with, uh, you know, with a pig and a, <laughs> or, or a boar, you know, just, just uh, so fast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you look at the Huns who were, you know, they were on lightning speed. They could shoot backwards from their horses mm-hmm. and um, they're just incredible warriors coming down from a different league. I don't think that the the Goths or, or the or the Gauls would have had much of a chance against an army like that. The Romans were the the best things Europe had to mm. defend um, against that invasion, and and even then it didn't work out that well. You brought up the the, the Huns. No, not the Huns. I brought them up. the other people, <laughs> the Mongols. Um, uh, listener Dan uh, brought up. Uh, the possibility of what happens when the Mongols arrive if we never really have a developed Europe, if it's still tribal by that stage, we don't have the medieval kingdoms. Uh-huh. What would happen when the Mongols swept in the Khans? Because like, would that lead to Europe having a Islamic Mongol culture? The minarets above Oxford, as Gibbon phrased it. Right. Well, that would um, depend on whether or not the Mongols had converted to Islam, right? Is it, ah, sorry, yes. is that what you're suggesting? Um, well, I, I forgot about that because if, say, Carthage doesn't go east, then you would probably leave the Parthians regaining the control of the old Persian Empire, which means that when um, Muhammad. Um, is he able to defeat a strong Persian Empire with his uh, his Arabian forces? And if he mm. doesn't, then we don't have Islam, so... I never thought about that. Would we have a... I don't, I don't know what religion it would be without that. Well, the the Mongolians didn't really have much of a, a religion themselves. They kind of, um, you know, had the um, all the religions of the world uh, outside their tent and kind of hedged their bets with all of them. So uh, wherever they went, they were very tolerant uh, of religions if they chose to govern those people and not kill them. Yeah, but perhaps um, a major world religion would have developed in this uh, barb, this like Germanic Europe, which the Mongols would adopt and take with them as they spread across. Uh, like rather than it being Islam, it was a new, different religion that had come from Europe. That would create a very different world. Uh, yeah, or um, there's a Zoroastrianism, which the, the oh, Persians yes. practice, which would probably become the dominant religion. Oh, yes, probably. Would have been. Uh, or yeah, Baalism. I, I mean, you would have had that and, and Baal, of course. Or yeah. uh, well, the, the Carthaginians actually practiced a, a polytheistic religion where each of kind of the, the Phoenician states or city-states 
had their own flavor. So they, so there were, there was Bao, there was Melquart, there was, there were a few others. Mm-hmm. But basically they were quite comfortable with the idea of polytheism. Uh, so you would have seen quite, uh, an incidence, I think, of, of polyism all throughout Europe with maybe, um, Zoroastrianism spreading. The one thing about Zoroastrianism was that eventually the Persians tied it, kind of tethered it to their ruler. Mm. So the ruler was was an intricate part of the um, the faith, which meant that when the ruler went away, when the the empire collapsed, so too did the religion. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if Zoroastrianism was kind of ripe for export as it were like would they have had missionaries go out because really uh, um to to a, a nation like carthage if you have zoroastrianism come into your realm and it um it's heralding the the emperor or the the, the sultan of a different nation um, as being the head of their religion and that that ruler, that secular ruler comes ahead of your local secular ruler. I don't think the Carthaginians would have stood for it at all. I don't think anyone would have stood for it if they were a nation. So, I, you know, I think uh, Zoroastrianism probably would have um, remained within the borders largely of, of Persia. Uh, and you would have had a very highly polytheistic um, kind of uh, Baal would have been the dominant um, uh, god within uh, a largely polytheistic Europe. Mm. by the time of the Mongols. There is always the possibility of, um, rather than it being um, Islam that spread into, like, uh, Turkestan, mm. um, it being, uh, like, a Buddhism or Hinduism ah. had spread there instead without the barrier of Islam. And then that would then that could have been spread east, and we have that would create quite a different world. Still polytheistic, and how would a polytheistic Hinduism have <laughs> gone against Baal? How would Baal, right. would Baal have been fitted into that? Or is well, first of all, Hinduism has never been uh, that right for export. Mm. It has uh, so quite it, it's mostly stayed localized. But the one thing about Hinduism is that uh, it has been remarkably adaptive at incorporating polytheistic and other forms of um, uh, beliefs into its pantheon. So, for instance, uh, the Buddha is a god within um, many Hindu sects. So you can go to sort of a temple and, and pray to Buddha and still be a Hindu. They kind of just incorporated them. They absorbed them. It's like the Borg. But Hinduism is localized. Buddhism is the one that really mm. spread and took off. And uh, I suppose it was around the the 5th century. I think uh, the Buddha was around the same time as Socrates. Yes, that's so, right. And then it, it was spreading, uh, you know, the, the next 500,000 years afterwards before you know, Hindu or sorry, um, Islam really smashed it down. So without that, as you say, without that barrier of of Islam, there's a very good chance that something that's very dominant and very kind of catchy and engaging as as Buddhism is uh, might have spread into Europe. So I, I think that I mean that's a fascinating uh, point of departure. Is that uh, you you result in a, a Buddhist Europe? I, yeah, fascinating. 
when we set off, I certainly didn't think that we'd end up on a Buddhist <laughs> Europe. Buddhist Europe, okay. Carthaginians win. Uh, England is Buddhist. I think that, that is a uh, fantastic place to end. <laughs> Great. Buddhist Europe. That's um, right. I would also, though, I would like to thank um, very Colin Stringer, um, Stephen Guerra, who does the History of the Papacy podcast, Andrew Mentz, and Robin Pearson, who did the History of Byzantine podcast, who all sent in their own alternative histories, and we haven't really had time to get into. Um, so thank you very much, guys, and I'm sorry I couldn't work it in. Although, Colin did do a fantastic analogy with relating... Um, Carthage's uh, post-Punic War battles to a cup tournament, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> I might have to put that on the website, um, that, that specific analogy, because it was really fantastic. Um, shall we wrap up? I think so. Jordan, if my listeners have greatly enjoyed hearing you talk, well, where can they find your things? Yeah, sure. Uh, just look up the Twilight Histories on mm-hmm. iTunes or, or just type Twilight Histories into your um, Google browser and and there you will find the website. And um, I might recommend starting with Roma Islamica as sort of a, you know, a, a first kind of podcast to go through. And that one is, um, it's an alternate history of Rome had it kind of embraced Islam so sort of a, a rise of the phoenix Rome under Islam and then sort of the, the story takes place where the Mongols come crashing through and uh, and this uh, Roman Islamic army has to defend itself against the, the Mos- uh, sorry against the Mongols so uh, so I'd be very happy if you uh, were to come and, and have a listen and, and listen to all the other shows as well and um yeah, so I'd really appreciate that. Yes, they are highly recommended. Um, as always, you can find us online. Yeah, the the website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. The Facebook page, the history, no, uh, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. The Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod. The YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. The podcast store, thehistoryofpodcast.spreadshirt.co.uk and you can send me an email thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com I'll see you all next week when we get into the next chapter of the Punic Wars when we uh, we, be- we begin getting up to Canali we're hopefully going to get to Canali in the next few episodes and then by episode 35 which will be the next Let's Talk I'm planning on bringing uh, Hanny back, and we shall discuss should Rome have marched on... No, should Hannibal have marched on Rome. So, uh, thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, thank you for coming on, Jordan. It's been very nice having you. All right, thanks, Jamie, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye.